Love Thy Neighborhood. It's been a fantastic series. How have you guys been going with it so far? Smile and nod politely. That's fine. Yeah, that's good. So have you been thinking about perhaps the neighborhood that God has been placing on your heart or on your mind that he's wanting you to um, maybe engage with and show the love of God to, um, whether it's your physical street or maybe your workplace or maybe your whanau, uh, maybe um, your school, um, whether you're a student or a teacher. Um, so there's, there's lots of different options of, of groups of people that God may be putting in front of you that you want, he wants you to show him, show them who he is. Yeah, don't get that confused because it's really confusing. Um, so we've been looking at some ideas through the story of the Good Samaritan, um, looking at the ways that Jesus was teaching us about how to be good neighbors, who our neighbors are, um, how we can see them and have compassion on them. And last week, Aaron shared some fantastic ideas around how that compassion that we have towards people can lead us to and should lead us to action, to doing something to meet the needs of those around us. So that was a really cool story that Jesus told. He made up that story um, to highlight some of the things that we need to do as good neighbors. Today, what I want to do is I want to take some of those ideas that we've been talking about, some of this philosophy around Love Thy Neighborhood, and I want to kind of look at a case study, if you will, of Jesus actually putting his ideas into action. And so we're looking at the story of Zacchaeus, as Molly said, a story many of you might be familiar with. If you've been in part of church for a while, you may have come across the story of Zacchaeus climbing up this tree and, and taking a look at Jesus, and it's a really, really cool story. But today what I want to do is I want to go through that story and sort of make some observations, observations about um, the ways that we can you know, live this love thy neighborhood thing out. All right, but before I do that, I do believe we have a video. Is that next up on the thing? Just to highlight, uh, no, do we? Do we have a video? Dad, computer person, is there a video next? Because I can't remember if it got put in or not. Yes, no, maybe? No, perfect. There's no video. There never was a video. I'm just testing you. Uh, to make sure you're onto it. And you passed. Well done. Okay. All right. This is going to be a great morning. We're going to have a really, really good time. Okay. So let's have a look at the story of Zacchaeus. It comes in the book of Luke, which is interesting because the story of the Good Samaritan, also in the book of Luke. Um, in fact, the story of the Good Samaritan will take place on the road to Jericho. And now Jesus himself is going to Jericho. So I don't know if he did that on purpose as kind of relating those two things um, in our minds, but hey, we can take that anyway. So here we go. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, small violin, and so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. All right, so immediately, as we're introduced to the story and we get to know this guy, Zacchaeus, Luke illustrates his point by making two statements about him that would have been crystal clear to the people living in that day, that this guy was a villain. All right, this guy, 
bad guy. He was a tax collector, and he was very wealthy. Okay, so in the story of Luke, um, a lot of the different Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have these themes that come through that the writers are pulling out to kind of illustrate. And the idea of rich people in the story of Luke is rich people tend to get a bit of a hard go. They tend to be people who don't want to listen to Jesus. They tend to be people who are the bad guys. That's not saying that all rich people are bad guys, but when you hear the word wealthy within the story, you kind of get this idea. It's a bit of a caricature that this guy's a bad guy. But that wasn't the big clue. The big clue was that he was a tax collector. Now, again, if you've been around church and you've heard some of these stories, this may be familiar to you, but tax collectors were really unliked in the day of Jesus. And that's not the same way that we don't like the IRD now because they keep taking my money that I'm making and boo, no one likes taxes. It was more than that. Because the Israelites living in Israel, they are God's people, yeah? They are the people of the almighty God who is the most powerful God of the universe, except they keep getting invaded by other countries around them which is a little bit of a knock on their God, and it kind of is a little bit shameful. And so the latest in that line was these Romans, okay? So the, the empire of Rome, they come in, they take over the place, they're killing people left and right. It's a, it's a mess. So they feel a great sense of oppression and shame about being ruled over by the Romans. Now, to make matters worse, Rome starts instituting taxes, because they need to pay for their armies that they're going around ravaging the nations with. And so they tax the people that they conquer in order to pay for things. Well, that's just like adding insult to injury, literally. So you have to pay money to these foreign pagan oppressors who don't know God and don't like God. We have to give them our money now? This is no good. Well, to make matters even worse, the Romans hired locals to collect the tax. So these people are supposed to be good Jews, right? And yet, they're working for this pagan government, taking our hard-earned money, which we don't have a lot of, and sending it off to Rome so that they can have these big banquets and get into all sort of lewd behaviors and stuff like that. And it's, this is just not on. So anyone who's taken that job is really going to become a bit of a pariah, a bit of an outsider, an outcast, Yeah. To make matters even worse is that tax collectors tended to use their position of authority because they would often have Roman guards with them. They have the power to take taxes, and they abused it. And they would steal, and they would take more than what was necessary. See, here's the way this works. A tax collector, to get the job of becoming a tax collector, would pay up front the year's taxes to Rome. Okay, so they would just pay for it out of their own pocket, and then they would go collect taxes to, to make up for it. And so usually it's wealthy people to start with, and so they would pay off their taxes, and then they would go around and they would pay taxes. And the Roman Empire would set the rates for taxes on goods, right? So for an X number worth of goods, you would take X number of taxes, right? But the tax collector was the one who determined what the value of your goods was. So they would take $100 worth of spices that you had imported from somewhere else, and they say, wow, what a great lot of spices. That's $200 worth of spices you've got there. 
you need to pay tax on that. Now, they're in Jericho. Jericho is kind of in the south. It's a little bit of a border town. It's a little bit of a port town. As you can see on the enlarged map, the road to Jerusalem from the north and from the east came through Jericho. So there's a lot of trade that comes through that space, right? A lot of people bringing their goods to sell in Jerusalem. And so here's the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. He's getting a bite of all of those apples coming through. Bigger bite than he probably should have. So he's a very, very wealthy man. And so you kind of got this picture of this guy, Zacchaeus, who is short, wealthy, and crook. All right? I mean, this is a character we've seen in a lot of movies, haven't we? Like, they just love this idea of the short, rich, crook guy who's in charge. So we get this picture of a person who is an outsider. This is very important. Okay? And not only is he an outsider like the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan and the Jews, they didn't like each other, but the, the man who was injured on the side of the road, this Jewish man, he was an outsider to the Samaritan walking down the road. But it wasn't his fault, right? This is a feud that had been going on for years and years and years and years. Zacchaeus was an outsider by his own choices. He was an outsider by the things that he chose to do, the job that he had. And maybe he didn't have a whole lot of choices for employment. But generally, since he was a wealthy man to begin with, probably, there's a sense in which he chose this line of work and he chose to cheat people out of their taxes and he chose to support a system of oppression. He's a bad guy. So what's interesting about Zacchaeus here is he is a bad guy and yet he desperately wants to see Jesus. Right? He wants to see Jesus so much that he's willing to climb a tree which is completely undignified for an adult male in this culture to go and climb a tree. And he does this because he's desperate to see Jesus. Now, what does that tell us? What's our observation here? A couple of observations I have. First is, this is the kind of guy, he's wealthy and healthy, as far as we know, and yet he desperately wants to see Jesus. So while the story of the Good Samaritan had this picture of a guy who desperately needs physical help, he is in trouble. He needs something. He is like, he's, he, if he doesn't get help, he's going to die. And we talked about how that resonates with people that we know in our neighborhoods. Maybe they're not on death's bed, but they need physical help or they need emotional help or they need you know, like this kind of mental help, they're in trouble, things are going wrong in their lives and we need to serve and help them, yeah? But this guy represents a different kind of person that we have in our neighborhoods. The person who's actually doing just fine. The person who doesn't need anything necessarily except they have a separation from God. They are not part of God's family. They are not connected to him. They need that. And also, they want that. Because we sometimes don't think that if they don't need anything, then maybe they, don't, they have no room for God in their lives. 
Zacchaeus is a picture of a person who had no needs at all except he had a desperate need for Jesus. Listen to what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, back in the Old Testament. This is a book of wisdom, and it tells us about who God is. It says, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Hear that. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. There is this idea planted in that verse that is true throughout the story of Scripture, and it is true of Zacchaeus, and it is true today, that people have an innate desire for something bigger than themselves. God has planted eternity in their hearts. The question then that we've got to ask ourselves, a question you've got to ask yourself is, do I feel lucky? Wait, no, sorry, wrong question. I'm contractually obliged, by the way, as a pastor to include at least two or three horrible jokes within every message. You do not have to laugh at them. But, okay, so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that that is true? Do we believe that God has placed eternity on people's hearts? Do we believe that even though many people would suppress and hide that, many people do not know that they need it, that it is there? Do you believe that people need something more, even if they're healthy and happy and wealthy and fine? Do you believe that they need the thing that we have? Do you, need, do you believe that they need Jesus, even if they show absolutely no sign of it? See, I think we need to balance our recognition and our understanding on one hand that people are going to reject Jesus. They're going to reject him. Some people will never want to know who he is. We balance that on one hand, and on the other hand, there's this biblical hope that people are searching for meaning in their lives. And the meaning that they are searching for is what Jesus offers. So that's what we see in, in the story so far with Zacchaeus. Now, moving on, that's the story of him. In the second part, we get to see how Jesus... Nope, that was the verse I read to you. Um, we see the, the part about how Jesus engages with Zacchaeus. Now, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come on down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly calmed down took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. All right, lots of observations here. You ready? Here we go. First one is, it's really interesting that Jesus, that Zacchaeus, that Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. Now, we don't know how or why, we don't know whether Zacchaeus is just a famous guy because he's the chief tax collector, so he's heard about this dude. We don't know if God sort of, if Jesus knew everybody's name anyway because he's God, or whether the Spirit kind of gave him some information, or whether Zacchaeus was wearing a name tag. We don't know. It doesn't really matter, but he knew it. And the point that we get out of this is that that personal connection is very, very important. And we've been harping on this with this Love Thy Neighborhood series. It matters 
that we know the people that we're trying to share God with. Relationship matters because people don't, know, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? That's what we've been saying. All right, so Jesus, um, he calls up to Zacchaeus. Now, in this story, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. This is really important too. This is another observation. Jesus came to Zacchaeus instead of waiting for Zacchaeus to come and find him. I don't know if he knew that Zacchaeus was already desperately searching for him, but he went to the tree and he looked up and he said, I got to come and eat with you today. And again, this is just part of this whole idea with love thy neighborhood. We're not waiting for people to stumble into faith and come into the church. We're not waiting for them to come search us out. We are searching people out, not in a creepy way, not in a stalky way, but in a way that says we love others and we don't expect people who don't care about God and don't care about the church to come and darken the door of a place they have no idea what's going to go on. They have no idea what Christians are like, or maybe they do and that's even worse. You know, and they, they've got all this fear and so we're not going to make them come to us. We're going to bring relationship to them and we're going to go and we're going to serve them and bring God to people. Now, third observation is that it may seem a little rude for Jesus to invite himself over for a feed. Have you ever had someone invite themselves over to your house? It's kind of a little faux pas, isn't it? It's like, oh, okay, sure, I guess I can do that. Spaghetti for you on toast. That's all you're getting. But in this culture, the most powerful act of acceptance and connectedness is for someone in spiritual authority, someone in authority, he was considered a teacher, to share a meal with someone. That was, that was top. That was amazing. For Jesus to share a meal, and of course Jesus didn't have a house, so he had to go to Zacchaeus' house, to share that meal was a statement of, I accept you, I'm connecting with you, we are friends in a hugely powerful way. And I wonder what the equivalent would be for us in our culture. What is it for us that is this powerful message that I accept you, that I'm connecting with you? Maybe it's sharing a meal in your house. I think that's kind of transferred across generations and cultures. To bring someone into your sacred space, to share that meal with them, says... I like you. I accept you. I'm on, I'm on your team. But have a think about that. In your, in your context, in your culture, in your neighborhood, in the way that you go about life, what is a way that you can show acceptance to people? All right, another observation is this language that Jesus uses. He says, I must be a guest in your house today. Maybe he's just really hungry and he's like, dude, I've got to eat. You know, I, I gotta come over now. I'm hungry. What have you got? Leftovers is fine. I gotta eat. I would suggest not. I suggest Jesus is a little bit more intentional than that. And there's this idea that he had determined to do this. This is important to him. I'm chatting with Tim Waikiki. If any of you have had a conversation with, yeah, I'm talking about you. Anyway, a conversation with Tim Waikiki. He talks about the power of making a decision, right? 
When you decide to do something, amazing things happen because you're in it. You're going to do this thing. When we kind of like, uh, maybe I should do that. You know how we do this? I should call that person. I should totally invite that person around. And we know it's going on a to-do list that is never getting looked at again. And months will go by and we're like, I totally should have done that. I was meaning to do that. No, you're right. You're never meaning to do that, right? We, we do this. That's our human nature. But when we decide to do something, Jesus decided he was going to connect with Zacchaeus today. And I love that intentionality in the way that we go and we connect with people around us. All right. Finally, in this section, there's this really interesting observation here that an amazing thing is happening, isn't it? You've got this guy who is a villain who, who needs Jesus, and then Jesus is coming and he's connecting with him, and, and there's like this amazing kingdom of God connection is happening right in front of all of these people. And what's their response? They grumble. I don't like it. This is not okay. People are not happy. They're upset that Jesus is sharing such a powerful moment of acceptance and connectedness with such a vile dude. I mean, these guys, some of them are religious leaders and they've been trying to do the right thing. Like, I'm following all of the laws. They haven't quite figured out that their heart's in the wrong place. They're following all the laws and Jesus is kind of like, nah, I want to go talk to the tax collector. I want to go hang out with this guy. People tend to want, and this is an observation I've made. I don't know if you've had this observation, but people tend to want us to first acknowledge and deal with the sinful behavior in people's lives and then offer community and acceptance to them, don't they? Like when they see us connecting with people who everyone would perhaps identify as not following God's plan, living a life in opposition to God. They say, you know, it's good that you connect with them because they need Jesus. But first, you've got to make sure that you do deal with the elephant in the room. First, deal with their sin, deal with that. And if they're willing to accept the, the message you've got for them, then yeah, great, have a meal with them. Jesus went the other way. Jesus, ah, he decided that first he was going to bring acceptance. Then he was going to bring truth. So what's the deal with these guys? What's the deal with these religious leaders who are grumbling? Now, on one hand, there's a case of, as my good friend Taylor would say, haters are going to hate, 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 right? They're just going to do that. Some people are just not going to like it when you're doing something good. But on the other hand, they kind of have a point, don't they? I mean, there's some truth here that we need to deal with, right? I mean, isn't it possible that when we offer acceptance towards someone who is anti-God and living a life that is not the way God wants us to live, aren't we validating that lifestyle? Aren't we sort of making it okay or even promoting it? Right? And I'm not going to get into specifics, but I think we can all think of situations that if we connect with this group of people or if we connect with this person, can I like them and hang out with them and eat with them and do life with them? Am I validating that lifestyle by doing that? 
Jesus never once relented on what he knew to be right and wrong. And yet he never let that stop him from connecting with people that he would say were wrong. It's not just changing our attitude towards the behavior. Jesus said that what they were doing was wrong many times. But he did not let that stop that connection. So the question is, how can we walk the line between accepting the person and promoting or endorsing the behavior? Do I have an answer for you? No. (laughs) Because it's different for different people in different situations. This is a question that you work out with God. But there is something that we can throw into this conversation. And that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in that when we see past the behavior of people, not ignore the behavior, but we see past the behavior to the core of who they are as people made in the image of God. That is the foundation of who they are, and we connect with that foundation, first and foremost. And we bond and connect and accept their humanity first, before then, when the time is right, addressing perhaps the behavior, or first, even before that, the relationship with God. Does that make sense? Easy said, not easy done. Then we get to the last part of the story. This life change, and it's amazing. So it says, meanwhile, and we don't know what meanwhile means, what kind of time has passed here. Zacchaeus stood up before the Lord, before Jesus, and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that what was lost. We obviously don't know what happened during that meal, but what a meal it must have been. All right, it must have been in this incredible moment. We don't even know what Jesus said, and that's important. We know that Jesus connected with him. He probably mentioned some things. He probably talked to him, but we don't know what happened. We just know that Because of this encounter, this guy's life completely changed. Completely. And it's interesting, it mentions this, I will give back four times as much. And he's talking about his money, but it's not just about money, because this four times as much is not just hyperbole, it's not just some random number he's come up with, like, I'm just going to give back like four times as much. No, this is a specific law in the Old Testament law God said, if you steal this sort of thing from someone, you need to give back four of the same thing, right? So his actions are not just, hey, I'm rich, I shouldn't be rich, let me give my money away, or hey, I cheated people and I shouldn't do that, so I'm going to give it back. He is making a statement that I am now going to obey the law that God gave to his people. I've done things the wrong way in my life. I'm now repenting from that, and I'm going to follow God's way of doing things. It's a heart change that expressed itself through his finances, right? That's why Jesus said salvation has come. This person was not following God, and now he is following God, which is a really cool thing. But perhaps the most important thing that I think comes from this story is it tells us the power of loving people before presenting truth to them. 
not an absence of presenting truth, but the power of loving first. Now, Jesus could have rocked up to the tree and he could have said, Zacchaeus, you're a bad dude. You've been stealing people. I know, I know you've been stealing people. I can give you an exact amount. And you need to get your life in order and you need to change. And that may have worked. Jesus is a powerful figure. You know, people really gravitated towards him. It might have been a very effective statement. But I'm guessing, and I'm going on a limb here because I don't actually know, but I'm guessing that as a prominent tax collector of the city, that the religious leaders had probably given him that sermon many, many times already. He'd probably heard that one, and he probably knew what God's people said was the right and wrong thing. And yet it did not seem to make any difference until God's presence entered the conversation. Jesus brought himself into that space. Well, the Bible says he is with us when we go out and we love. When we bring love, when we bring compassion, when we bring acceptance, when we bring eyes that see the humanity of people, when we bring that out into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our workplaces, when we connect with people on a human level, show that compassion to them, we are bringing Jesus into those situations. And maybe, quite possibly, that's the difference that it's going to make in that person's life to change their hearts. And maybe, just maybe, when we bring that presence into their lives, into that relationship, that God will stir that person's heart and they will come back to you with a question, with a story, with an opening of their hearts and their minds. I need to know what this Jesus is about. And then our truth comes and hearts are changed. William Barclay, I want to end with this quote. He says, more people, and he hasn't done the research on this necessarily. I don't know if he's got numbers, but I think the ethos is correct. He says, more people have been brought into the church by kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. May that be true in our neighborhoods this week, this month, this year. Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you that you care. I ask that you would help us to just live out the observations we see in the way that you lived your life, the way you approached people. May we do the same thing uh, with your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.